you know, trying to please the king in, in his bed so she, could get the, so she could get the crown. Lots of things we talked about, about Esther. But uh, at the end, you see Esther standing strong with the people of God, making a choice to risk her life to save the people of God, identifying herself openly and with courage uh, with the people of God. And tonight, as we come to this major turning point, um, we're going to see uh, just an amazing set of reversals that happen where God just so happens to move all things according to the counsel of his will so that his covenant is uh, perfected, that his promise is sure, and he brings his word to pass. So when we left Esther last time, we were about to see Esther's plan come to fruition. We actually stopped right before the climax of her plan. Um, Esther has already decided in earlier chapters to intervene for the people, try to save uh, her people by swaying the king, uh, to overturn Haman's decree. That's what she wants. She appeared in the court. Remember what you're not supposed to do unless you're summoned by the king. She risked her life. And we saw the king extend his scepter to her, saving her life. And then he asked her what her request was. Do you remember what she said her request was? Yeah, let's have a dinner. Let's have a banquet. I want to have a banquet, and I want you and Haman to come to the banquet. And they had the banquet. We saw that last week. And at the banquet, the king asked her again, Esther, what is your request? What is it that you want? And you remember what she said? I want to have another banquet, right? And so at the end of that section, Haman left and he goes home. He's joyful. He's happy. Queen Esther has honored me to be at the banquet with the king. Uh, I am the greatest that there ever was and all that, all that prideful stuff. And on his way out, who does he see? Mordecai. And he gets angry again. Mordecai refuses to bow to him like all of the other servants bow to him. He refuses to be fearful of him. It said he didn't tremble when he saw uh, Haman. And this sends Haman into a rage again. And so he's enraged and he goes home. And what does he do when he gets home and his friends and his family are all there? What's the first thing he does? Yeah, he starts bragging about how great he is and all of the things that he's been given and the accomplishments. And even Queen Esther wants to bring me to her banquet. And then Haman, uh, uh, he, they, they counsel him. Okay, if you want to get rid of this guy, this is what you do. And what do they tell him to do? Yeah, build a big, huge gallows. NIV, some of your other translations will say a pole, like an impaling spike. You know, sometimes the Persians did that, and it could be translated that way. But the traditional translation is gallows, where they would hang it. So he's enraged. He goes home, brags about his stuff. They tell him, you want to get rid of this guy? Just build you a 75-foot gallows, hang him on it, and all the people of Susa will know that you are Haman and nobody messes with you. Now, we don't know why Esther chose to delay and say, let's have another banquet tomorrow. We talked about that last week. Um, but we did see that God had a reason. And what was the reason that another day was needed? Yeah, because that night just so happened 
The king couldn't sleep. Just so happened he wanted the chronicles read. Just so happened the chronicles were read right in the place where Mordecai saved him from an assassination plot and he was forgotten and no reward was given. So in these providential events, uh, we see God moving the heart of the king. So the king decides to reward Mordecai and it just so happened again. Haman is entering the court right as the king says, find out who's out there and we're going to bring them in here and we're going to make them go reward Mordecai. And Haman is forced to lead Mordecai around in king's robes on the king's horse, uh, shouting, this is what the king does to those that he honors. You remember all that? All right. It was humiliating, a blow to Haman. He goes back home, says, with his head covered in shame, and he complains again to his family, and then his family reverses their advice and says, well, if it's Mordecai that you're after, you're not going to prevail against him. And here's where we pick, pick up uh, tonight in chapter 7. So right at the end of chapter 6, Haman is talking to his family and his family and friends. They say, you're not going to prevail against Mordecai. You're not going to prevail. And we talked about the fact that it was because of the Jews' God that they weren't going to, he wasn't going to prevail against the Jews. Uh, and so here the pace of action picks up just a little bit. Let me read the last verse of chapter 6. Haman is talking to them and they're telling him, you're not going to prevail against uh, Mordecai. And it says, while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So at this moment that they're telling him, Haman, sorry, you're doomed. They show up to take him to the banquet. They rush him off to the bank. Haman, who has borne all the power all the way up through this story of the Persian Empire, is not in control anymore. He's never been in control, but now he realizes he's not in control. There's no time to consider or plan. There's no time to, uh, to, to rescind his, his uh, you know, take down the gallows he built for Mordecai to be killed on because now he knows the king favors Mordecai. There's no time. He's caught in this tidal wave of his own schemes, which in Proverbs says happens often to the wicked. So they go to Esther's second banquet, and here, the king asks her a third time what her request is. In verse 1 and 2, it says this. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said, again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Notice how he frames the question. He's asking her... Technically, he's asking her two different things. What's your wish? What's your request? But really, we know it's the same thing. He's asking her, what is it you want? Why, why did you show up in the court that you're not supposed to do? And then you want to have a banquet. And then you want to have another banquet. He knows she has a request. And he asks, what's, what's your wish? What's on your mind? What do you want? And I want you to notice her answer. In verse 3, it says, Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. She frames it in the way that he framed it, a wish and a request, but really it's the same thing. Save my life and save my people's lives. By responding this way, she's using the king's language. She's really asking for one thing. We already know what that is. But we see that in her mind... As she presents this request, you see there's a change in her. 
There's a change that has happened in her. This is not the same mindset Esther had when she was hiding her Jewish heritage before. Now she identifies herself with her people. Like she's revealing to the king and to Haman who's sitting there, I'm Jewish. And none of y'all knew that. Her life was indeed spared when the king allowed her into his presence, you know, and he held up the scepter. But she's not out of the woods yet. She's under the decree of death that they sent out for all of the Jews to die. And here she is courageously revealing herself as a Jew, which means she's under the same sentence of death. She's choosing to identify herself with her people openly in front of the one man that has decreed that she should die, knowing that it's going to cost her her life, or it may cost her her life. In verse 4, she continues her request saying, first she said, save my life, save my people's life. Here's why. For we have been sold, I and my people, identifying herself with her people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Do you notice, why does she frame it like that and say, we've been sold to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated? Anybody know? Anybody recognize that language? It's the exact wording in the edict that went forth. She uses this phrase because she is referencing the edict. I'm not sure if the king understood what she was saying at this point. Because remember, Haman wrote the edict and he stamped it with the king's ring. So all the king knew was a certain people is going to be wiped out. But it's the same language. Back in chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day in the 13th, uh, 13th of day of the 12th month. Esther is making a direct reference to the decree of death that Haman sent out under the king's name. So at this point, all, all the chips are on the table. So whether the king realizes it or not, he's going to come to here in a moment. Uh, he may already realize it. We're, we're just not sure. You know Haman realizes it, right? He's the one who wrote the decree. He's the one to said to kill, to annihilate, to destroy, kill, and annihilate. Now Esther's using the same language. What do you think is going through Haman's mind right now? Yeah, Rutro. She's Jewish. The queen is Jewish. And I signed an order in the king's name to kill his wife and to kill all of her people. She is, at this point, you know, he, he, you can feel the sweat just beating off his forehead. He's got to be feeling it. And then in verse 5, he says, Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe? an enemy, this wicked Haman, then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Now, apparently, I, I think, I'm, I'm not 100% sure, so we can have the debate if you want to. I don't know that her referencing the exact language of the decree jogged the king's mind. Like, like I, it doesn't seem, he's asking like, well, who, who did this? You know, it's almost like David and Nathan. He's like, who's the man who did this? And, and you know, like, 
you are, you know, you, you're the one who did this. But she phrased it in such a way to pull the blame off the king. She says, we have been sold, you know, probably talking about the money that Haman tried to pay to the king for, uh, to destroy the Jews. But it doesn't seem like he gets it. He says, who is he and where is he? So apparently it didn't jog his memory that he agreed to let Haman massacre a, a certain people all through his empire. But I think the king is enraged because he can't believe that someone would make this kind of threat to the queen. I mean, and, and, I mean from what we know from Ahasuerus, from Xerxes, it's probably not even that, oh, he loves his queen so much. It's probably like, this is a personal affront to me. You know, this is an insult to me. You know, this would be a, a, a disrespect, a dishonor that, that could not go unpunished. He demands to know who would dare do such a thing. And Esther reveals the culprit sitting right next to him. The Hebrew here, Esther, what she says is really short and choppy. So the English translation kind of smooths it out. But basically, technically, it says a man, a foe, an enemy, Haman, the wicked one. And so it's just short and choppy, and you can just kind of, I don't know, I, my imagination, I just feel the emotion coming out. So, and then look at this reversal that happens. No longer is Haman prideful. No longer is he boasting about his great stuff. No longer is he filled with rage and seeking vengeance on Mordecai and Mordecai's people. No longer is he disdaining of Mordecai the Jew and his people. Now he is terrified. And he's terrified before this Jewish woman. And he has nowhere to go. The king and queen, you can imagine, like, Haman did it. And both the king and queen turned to look at Haman. And it says he was terrified before the king and queen. You can almost hear his heart thumping in his chest, can't you? So in verse 7, any questions, comments? This is going to move quick. We're going to try to get through both chapters. In verse 7... It says, the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. We don't really know why. There's a lot of theories what he was doing. So some people say that he was just enraged and just so angry he had to get out of the room. Uh, maybe others say that he had to think about what he needed to do because, you know, technically the, the order's in the king's name. So how can he, how can he fix this situation without, without losing face? Uh, some people say catch his breath think about what to do yeah, there's all, we don't know we're not told why but Haman knows that he is about to die and he knows and we know from all of what we've seen in Esther that Ahasuerus the king is a man who's easily influenced by others you know, so from the very first chapter, it's other people that have been telling him what to do all the way. So Haman doesn't try to follow the king out to the garden. He stays to beg for his life from Queen Esther. He says he stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. Do you have any thoughts as to why the king ran out into the palace garden? Yes. To get the guards? Maybe. Yeah, yeah, they're there. So maybe he went out to go grab somebody to 
take up Haman. Who knows? We, we're, we're honestly not told, so we don't know. So, but Haman knows he's, he's going to die, so he's begging. He's begging. And here we see another reversal, don't we? Remember how all this started? Haman demanded the king even order. Everybody's going to bow down before me. And who was the guy who wouldn't? Mordecai. And why wouldn't he? Because he was Jewish and Haman was the descendant of Agag, the Amalekite. He refused to do it. And now the great and powerful Haman, prime minister of the Persian Empire, all the power of the empire other than the king, second in command of the king, is bowing and begging at the feet of a Jewish woman. And not just a Jewish woman. Mordecai's relative. Come on now. That's pretty good. You know God's got such a sense of humor. Throughout this book, we've seen things that just so happen. Providence, you know, God's hand behind it all. And Haman falls before the queen and the king just so happened to turn right back around and come back into the building at the exact right time. It says, And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king says, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. They were taking him away. Now, the king comes back and he sees, presumably, we don't know what Haman was doing, but I mean, we know he's begging for his life, but we don't know what position he was in, if he was on the reclining couch with Esther, or if he was down at her feet. We don't know. But we do know what the king was thinking. You know, out in the garden, we're not sure if he was thinking about himself. We're not sure if he was thinking about the rage he felt that this disgrace had come upon him. We're not sure about any of that stuff. But when he comes back and sees what's going on, that seals the deal. It doesn't matter now. This looks bad. Now, obviously, there's some um, commentators that talk about how this was a breach of palace protocol. You don't go anywhere near the king's harem, especially the king's queen. Uh, and he gives, uh, he gives the king uh, the charge. Uh, some people think that he was thinking about what to do and didn't know what to do. But when he came back and saw this, that's it. Haman, you're dead. You're a dead man. Maybe true. We don't know. Maybe the king really thinks he was attacking her or he was, you know, just too close to her or whatever, being inappropriate with her. But before any orders even given, the guards come up and they cover his face and they yank him to his feet. Now, what to do with this man? What do we do with him? Well, it just so happened that a servant was there present with them who knew why those gallows outside were built. It says, then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance to the king, said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king. It's not bad enough that he said he's going to kill Mordecai. You know, Mordecai, the guy who saved your life. He built some gallows to kill him. He says, he's standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And without missing a beat, the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. What a reversal. 
The gallows built to kill Mordecai are used to kill Haman. 75 feet in the air where all of the city can see what happens when you attack the people of God. One day, Haman's on top of the world. Wealth and power, highest rank in the Persian Empire under the king. He could boast to his family about all his accomplishments and the position that he'd reached and the banquet that he was about to go to to his family. And the very next day, he's executed in disgrace as a traitor. What a difference a day makes. The tables are turned on, this, on his wickedness because one night, the king had insomnia and just so happened to read the Chronicles where Mordecai saved his life. But in this, we also see how God's plan works through all of the ages. Like not just in these moments, but God's plan coming to fruition over centuries of time. Haman was descended from Agag. Agag was king of Amalekites. What did God tell Saul to do to the Amalekites? Wipe them completely out. Because God declared in Deuteronomy and in Exodus that he would be at war with the Amalekites forever. Through all generations in Deuteronomy, he even told them, Do not forget when you enter the land, talking to Joshua and them, you wipe them out. They didn't do that. And then he gave Saul the command. Saul, you wipe them out completely. The enemies of God. And what did Saul do? He let them live. He let many of them live. He let Agag live. Remember, that's the whole thing where Samuel comes up and says, what is that here? I hear sheep bleating and, and Agag is still alive. And, and Samuel's the one who actually kills him. And so he let him live. And because of that, because of Saul's disobedience, God took the kingdom from Saul. It was a big deal. So many people ask the question, was Esther wrong for not granting Haman, or at least trying with the king to grant Haman mercy as he begged for his life at her feet? Yes, no, maybe. No, why? He was out to eliminate all the Jews. Wickedness, for sure. At Haman's death... Queen Esther succeeded where her ancestor, Saul, remember she's descended from Saul, Mordecai's descended from Saul, failed. Even if she wasn't aware of it, God had purposed the Amalekites would be destroyed and they'd be wiped out. And over and over again, the people of Israel disobeyed his command. Over and over again, they let them live. They did what God told them not to do. And here you have this Jewish woman, this queen, through God's working through her, did what King Saul refused to do. And we're going to see in the next chapter, or the chapter after that, that the sons of Haman also die. The Amalekites are wiped out. So God used all these events in Esther. I mean, from the drinking party to Esther becoming queen through providence, through all of these subsequent events, not only to fulfill his promise to his covenant people that he would protect them, that they would return to the land, all those things, but also to bring his judgment to pass on the enemies of God's people that he swore would receive judgment back in Deuteronomy. See how it all works together? God's wrath and justice are accomplished 
through these chance events that just so happened to be taking place in the palace of the Persian Empire. It's amazing. It's amazing how it all works together. God's plans and his purposes are so much higher than ours. And in the midst of them, we can't see why. We can't understand what God's doing. When, when all of this came down, Mordecai was in sackcloth and ashes, mourning. And the Jews in all of the provinces of all of Persia were mourning and crying and weeping. Uh, they, I'm not saying they weren't trusting God. It's right to grieve when something like that's going on. But in the midst of it all, everything that had happened including Haman's rise to power and Mordecai getting forgotten for saving the king's life had to happen exactly the way it happened so that this result, not only that God would keep his word to his people, but also that God would keep his word of judgment to the Amalekites. I mean, it all just comes together in this one point. God's plans are way higher than our plans. And he knows what he's doing. But... The story's not over yet. So Haman is dead and gone now. He's hung on his own gallows. And it says, after Haman died, the king's anger abated, which tells you a lot about the king. The king really wasn't angry because, you know, a whole people group's going to die in my kingdom. He was just angry at Haman. But more's at stake here than just one man's evil intent. The lives of all the Jews in the empire are still in danger. They're still coming that day that the decree went forth that they are all going to die by the hands of everybody in Persia. He says, you're free to kill, destroy, annihilate, and take all their stuff. The lives of the Jews of the empire are still in danger. So Haman begged for his life, but he still lost his life. Well, will the Jews lose theirs too? Not this time. First, we see yet another reversal. In verse 1 and 2 of chapter 8, it says, On that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. You see how he's described there? The enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. She reveals, I'm Jewish. Not only am I Jewish, Mordecai is my, what is he, a cousin, uncle, something like that. I, I don't remember. It's been too long. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now, if that ain't the king of all reversals, Mordecai, sitting in sackcloth and ashes at the king's gate, is now second in command in the Persian Empire. Mordecai now, who... The most powerful man besides the king in the whole Persian Empire had his designs on killing this man and destroying all his people. Now is sleeping in his bed. Now is living in his house. Now has the signet ring on his finger that Haman used to make the decree. He is the most powerful man in the Persian Empire now. Why would the king do that? Why would the king... I mean, it, Esther doesn't present him as the smartest of guys. So, but all of this happens. Esther, he realizes Esther's Jewish. He realizes she's related to Mordecai. And the first thing he does is pull the ring off of the finger, second in command, the king's ring, his seal, and gives it to Mordecai. Why do you think he did that? 
For sure, for sure. I agree. She said, first, the king probably saw Esther's loyalty, or Mordecai's loyalty saved his life before, and Esther's uh, loyalty to him. But ultimately, the king's heart is a stream of water in God's hand, and he moves it wherever he wills. Mordecai, God's man, who is basically at the center of all of this, is now going to be the most powerful man in, in the empire. And you're going to see it two chapters from now. When, they come, when the day comes and they all come to kill the Jews, it says that the provincial leaders and the governors and the satraps and the people that were part of the Persian government, they were scared of the Jews because they feared Mordecai. He's given the power. Rise, he rises to the heights of the Persian empire. He's plundered the enemy. And God gives the spoils to Mordecai. Mordecai is given Haman's position in the government. Now he is the prime minister. But the story is still not over. The, the conflict is still not done. The decree is still signed. And it's still true that the Jews' lives are still decreed to die. So what Esther does next, any questions before we move on? What Esther does next is she once again pleads for her people to the king. It says, then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, you know, she is still being the queen. She still understands, uh, she still understands that this man holds the power to all things that in the Persian Empire. God does, but you know what I mean when I say that. And I'm pleasing in his eyes. Let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the province of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Esther again identifies herself with the people of God. If the decree holds and every Jew in the provinces is killed, Esther will be killed too. She's begging the king to reverse this decree. Begging him to put a stop to this. But there's a problem. Once the king's decree, the law of the Medes and the Persians, that was the phrase that was always used in antiquity that it can never be changed. When the king gives the law of the Medes and the Persians, it cannot be revoked. It cannot be changed, not even by the king himself. So he says to them, King Ahasuerus said to the queen, queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. Is that true? Yeah, no, it's not true. No, I mean, I, I'm not so, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. But I'm not so sure that he knew the whole decree thing and who it was that was... I'm not sure he knew all what Esther was saying when she first said, it's Haman. He's designed to kill us. I'm not sure he, it registered in his mind that the Jews are going to be killed because Haman never told him it was the Jews. He said it's a certain people that's going to be killed and the king never asked. And 
the king honored Mordecai the Jew. I mean, how would he do that knowing that this guy's going to die here in you know, eight months anyway? And so I think he is the consummate politician. Well, I have, I have you know, uh, I've given justice. I've given justice. But he says, you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. There's a problem. A decree from the king can't be revoked. It's binding. It can't be undone. But what the king does do is allow Mordecai to write another decree. Now, as we read 9 through 12, we're going to read it all in a section, the language is almost exactly the same as the language used when Haman wrote his decree. But this time, the result is different. Look at verse 9. It says, The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials and the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And here's what the decree said. And he wrote in the name of the king Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that they used the king's service bred from the royal stud. The reason why it's so elaborate is because it's the same exact language of the decree Haman wrote. But this decree is different. Saying that, this is what it said. The king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives. And he uses the same three words. To destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout the provinces of the king of Hazuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Now, that's a whole lot in there. But I want you to think about what just happened. Mordecai, in his decree, you know, it's Mordecai doing this. He's got the signet ring. He's signing the king's name to it. Mordecai echoes the words of Haman's decree exactly. Destroy, kill, annihilate. Only now, the Jews are given the right to kill, look at it, any armed force. That means any governmental body. Any Persian governor who rallies his troops to go and kill the Jews, they have the king's seal to fight back against the Persian Empire. Any, you know, I mean, I don't know if they had neighborhoods, but you know what I mean. Any neighborhood watch or whatever that gets together and they're going to do it, they have the right, they have the right to, to marshal themselves, defend themselves destroy, annihilate, and kill anybody that attacks them and plunder their property. Now make sure you understand what just happened here. It isn't just a law that says you're allowed to defend yourself. In essence, the king just allowed Mordecai to give a royal decree that legalized civil war between the Jews and anybody in the Persian Empire who would attack them would be okay. Why would a king of an empire do that? Why would he say, 
I can't reverse the decree that says they're all going to die. But I'll let you write your decree that they can all fight back. I mean, imagine, I, I don't know all the satraps and the governors and all that, but, you know, some bloodthirsty, money-grubbing governor of some province in the king holds the authority in the province. He's the governor. What he says goes only under the king is his authority and he can do whatever he wants to do. He can get up whatever king, the king's army's there and he can marshal all of the Persian army, not all the Persian army, but there in that province to go and destroy all the Jews. And the king of Persia gave the Jews the right to fight back against the Persian army itself. Can you imagine like, why would the king do that? I'm going to okay a civil war in my, in my kingdom. It's the same reason we've seen before. Because the heart of the king is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And he's made a covenant promise to his people. And he's going to keep that covenant promise. It says the edict was even posted in Susa, the capital city. So that fighting between the Jews and those who would attack them would be in the streets below the palace. In verse 13 and 14 it says, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies so that couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, the decree was posted in the capital city. Mordecai's decree is also addressed to the Jews, something that wasn't before in the other decree. They're now seen as a distinct people group in the Persian Empire, given the authority to defend themselves against anybody, even the Persians. The governors, satraps, the military people of Persia, Persia could wield no authority to kill the Jews at will because the king allowed them to fight back. The king's edict allowed them to fight back against any authority, anybody that would try to marshal itself against it. It's, it's incredible. It's incredible. In the course of two days, everything changed. Haman's original edict caused mourning and sorrow and fasting and weeping. You remember as we saw that? It was all in the, in the city and in all the providences. The Jews were mourning. The decree was sent out the day before they were celebrating Passover. And so the question they all asked as they were eating the Passover, is God going to save us? Is God going to keep his covenant promise? And, and Haman's original edict caused Mordecai himself to go through the city wailing in sackcloth and ashes. He was wailing all through the city. And now we see the reversal that this decree brings. In verse 15, it says, Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Mordecai now has Haman's office. He's the prime minister of Persia, this Jew. He has Haman's house. And all of his stuff, we saw that. And now he is celebrated. Remember, remember how Haman made people celebrate his honor and glory? Oh, y'all are all going to bow down to me. And if you don't bow down to me, it's going to be heck to pay. But here Mordecai strolls out of the palace in royal robes, a crown, and the city shouted and rejoiced. Mordecai, I mean... 
not only the city, but all the Jews, all through the provinces. Verse 16 says, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province, in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples, look at this, of the country declared themselves Jews. For the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Can you imagine? The Jews who were weeping and wailing at the first decree are now rejoicing. And the Jews rejoice that they've now been given the means to defend themselves. So throughout these several chapters, and uh, I, I can't wait to tell you till next week, when, when the battle happens, they, they, the Jews kill like 75,000 people that try to kill them. I mean, that's, that's the size of a small army. It's been estimated that um, Xerxes took between 70 and 300,000 people to Greece. You know, so, and, and the king is like, he's rejoicing. He's like, not rejoicing, but he's like, how many were dead? Oh, wow. How about that? God has moved. And what strikes me, we talked about Agag and we talked about the Amalekites and we talked about God's judgment upon them and how Esther who went from hiding her Jewish identity to standing boldly and courageous, Esther fulfilled what Saul failed to do in killing the Amalekites, Haman, the son of Agag, or the descendant of Agag. And then when we see the battle, I can't wait to tell you this next way, it's just too good. When you see the battle take place, remember the edict said the Jews can defend themselves, anybody that attacks them, they can annihilate, kill, destroy, and you can plunder their property. And it says, after the battles, after it's all said and done, the Jews defend themselves and they don't take any of their property. Why? What God tells Saul. Man, it's just amazing. It's just amazing. Fulfilling the edict that they're, Mordecai and Esther descended from Saul. Fulfilling the edict that their ancestor Saul failed to do. Throughout these several chapters, we've seen the reversal of all these events. I mean, whether consciously or not, Haman attempted to bring destruction, the decree of destruction upon the people of God, just as God had decreed the destruction upon the Amalekites, which Haman was one. And at the end of the day, Haman's decree doesn't stand and God's decree is fulfilled. But don't miss the significance of these events. You know, we've talked through Esther. Sometimes reading through books like Esther and Ruth and, and you know, the historical books, uh, for Samuel, th those things, sometimes it can feel like a history lesson, you know, and it's just like, wow, this happened. And, you know, that's great. But at the end of the day, I mean, the significance of this in salvation history, this is a battle for the Jewish people's lives in, in Persia and in Jerusalem. You know, that's part of Persia right now. It was, not, it, it was not just a battle to see who's in control and whose word would win out. I mean, God is going to win out, but this was not just God keeping his covenant promise to the Jews saying, nobody's going to kill you. I'm going to bring you back to the land and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to fulfill all the things that I promised you. It was God keeping his covenant promise to you. If Haman's decree went forth and the Jews were wiped out, yes, God's covenant with them would have been proven a lie, so we, knew that, we know that can't happen. But more significantly, 
God's promise of a Savior to come from the line of David would have been proven a lie. God moved in all these events, small and great, because what was at stake here is his word, his promise, and your soul. Because if the Jewish people die out in Persia because of this crazy man's decree during the time of Esther, the Savior would have never been born in Bethlehem, would he? And God's promise back in Genesis 3.15 that a seed of the woman would come to crush the head of the serpent would have never come to pass. It was impossible for God's word to fail. God protected his word to the Jews in Persia, not just for them, but for you. That Jesus Christ would come from the Jews who were still alive at the time because Haman's decree failed. Questions, comments? Yes. Sure, sure. He did. He did. So what Don said, if you didn't hear that, he said early, in an earlier chapter, what we went through, it said when Mordecai, when Esther was balking a little bit saying, I can't go in front of the king. He hadn't summoned me in 30 days. Mordecai says, if you don't go and stand for your people, he said, salvation, deliverance would arise from another place. Uh, but you and your father's household will perish. Uh, and so we know, you know, I say, if this wouldn't have happened, Jesus would have never been born. We know that can't be possible because God's will was that Jesus would be born. What I mean is you see the events just, I mean, not miraculous events, just all of these little bitty just so happened that the king couldn't sleep that night and it could just so happened that Mordecai was on his mind when Haman walked in the door wanting to kill him. Just, I mean, all, that Esther would, would be in the right place at the right time to you know, have favor with the king and all of these little bitty events just stacked on top of each other, this providence of God moving in all of these little things to bring just... I mean, I don't say unimaginable, but it's just, it's almost unbelievable, isn't it? Like you would have never thought Haman, the most powerful man in the world, other than the king, could be brought so low so quickly. Two days. You would have never thought Mordecai the Jew, who was at the beginning of the book, hiding his identity. You know, not really a, not really a picture of, of, of one we need to follow. But God used him and brought them to a place where both he and Esther stood with this courage, this faithfulness, this, uh, you can't even define it. You know, that, that moment when the doors to the, to the, to the palace, to the throne room opened up and Esther's standing there in her role. I mean, that is, that's amazing. Like, you would have heard gasps. She's going to die. And she did, I mean... It, God working through all of this just solidifies the fact that his word can't fail and his word won't fail and he will, he will bring an earthquake to rattle a jail to get his people out if they need it. He will send pillars of clouds and fire if they need it to guide them and he will work in the everyday decisions and lives of people and the things that go on to accomplish his will. 
it's just amazing. Our God is, is faithful. Questions, comments? All right, let's pray. I think maybe one more. Uh, if I can't get it all in one, it'll be two more, and then we'll move to another book. Father, we do love you. We thank you for your word. God, once again, we do pray for um, our several sisters who are in the hospital. Uh, God, we, we ask that you watch over them and that you would bring healing to them. Uh, God, we pray that you would uh, just help us to know what to do and how to pray and how to keep them on our minds as we pray for them. God, I thank you for, I thank you for this study in the book of Esther. I thank you for um, just your faithfulness. That, uh, that we can see in every line of every page, uh, in a book where uh, the name of God is not even mentioned, we see your hand and your, your fingerprints all over the things that are going on to protect your promise, uh, not just to the Jews in Persia, but to us as well. God, and we, we know that you're faithful. God, help us to walk in it. Sometimes we have a hard time when we're going through the midst of trial, seeing how you are um, keeping your promises and working through all the events of this life. God, we are, uh, we are fallen and we are weak and we are dependent wholly upon you. I pray that you would use the scriptures that we have read and um, the presentation of your glory, your grandeur, your faithfulness into keeping your promise uh, to encourage us tonight. We thank you, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.